welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast about doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. This week, I'm talking to NHS GP, Dr. David Unwin. No one, I think, in the UK has done more to develop and promote a low-carb approach for treating type 2 diabetes than David. And in 2016, he won the NHS Innovator of the Year Award for his work. I feel we tend to believe that unless we have a form of diabetes, that we don't really need to be concerned about our blood sugar levels, but nothing could be further from the truth. As we get older, all of us will see our blood sugar levels rise. This causes our bodies to produce more and more insulin, which can lead to insulin resistance. And if we eat a diet particularly high in carbohydrates, we'll be at even greater risk of developing this. And that matters because insulin resistance doesn't just drive type 2 diabetes, but a wide range of illnesses, including high blood pressure, heart disease, and some cancers too. But before we get to David's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to leave a review on Spotify or Apple, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. You can also become a paid supporter of the podcast at patreon.com slash what your GP doesn't tell you or via PayPal on my website, what your GP doesn't tell you.com. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this podcast. So even a small amount of money makes a huge difference. And you can find out more information about the pod on my website, where you can sign up for the podcast mailing list, follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker, and on my Substack account, liz.tucker.substack.com. Many thanks. Now back to the interview with David. Dr. David Unwin is an NHS GP. He's a senior partner at the Norwood Surgery in Southport, where he's worked since 1986 as a family doctor. For the past few years, David has been a Royal College of General Practitioners expert clinical advisor on diabetes. And as a result of his interests in both better communication with patients and type 2 diabetes, David was made Royal College of General Practice National Champion for Collaborative Care and Support Planning in Obesity and Diabetes in 2015. Here's David's interview. So David, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. Up to about 10 years ago, you were using a fairly sort of standard drug-driven approach to treating patients with type 2 diabetes. What changed? I just became more and more disappointed, really. Doing surgeries became a heavier and heavier burden. I didn't really see people improving because of my efforts. And you become a doctor in the hope you'll make a difference. Of course, there are people, you know, they've got pneumonia or a terrible earache or whatever, and antibiotics are very helpful. But the majority of the patients, it struck me, they were just getting sicker. Uh, and I was not really making a difference. And it, it was reaching a crisis point. And I think this happens with very many GPs and other healthcare professionals, where I was really thinking I would retire at the age of 55 and do something more productive. So that was a crisis based on just not feeling the joy of being a doctor. Now, of course, I'm still there, 65 in September, and they can't shake me off. What has changed now is that every clinic I do are full of joy. I'm taking people off long-term medication. 
my favourite verb is deprescribing. So, David, during that period when you were becoming more disillusioned, presumably you were gradually seeing more and more patients coming in who developed type 2 diabetes. Absolutely. So in our practice, we'd had an eight-fold increase in the number of people with type 2 diabetes since I was a young man, but no extra nurses or doctors. The workload was worse and worse. The joy I got from being a doctor was diminishing. And when I look back now, it was because I didn't know how to help them. Progressively, I was adding in more medication and then some more. Then you start adding in drugs for the side effects and drugs for the side effects of the side effects, layer after layer. And in my heart, I knew, I absolutely knew it was wrong, but I couldn't see any way. Back in 2008, there was a famous diabetes trial known as the Accord trial, yes. which found that the intensive management of type 2 diabetes using current treatment protocols produced an increase in both morbidity and mortality. So that would surely have suggested that the standard approach wasn't working. Yes. And so I remember that well, because we were shocked in the practice. So this was one where they thought, logically, if you get a bunch of people with poorly controlled type 2 diabetes and medicate them to ensure that, that diabetic control improves, then it was thought that the outcomes would be better. And what absolutely shocked the medical world, the study had to be stopped early because of cardiovascular deaths. So these were people with poorly controlled diabetes, increasing medications like insulin. Insulin, of course, does get sugar out of the bloodstream, but it has to do something with it. So insulin pushes blood sugar into your belly and into your liver. The result was people were gaining weight significantly but the sugar was being turned into fat, and some of this fat was causing cardiovascular deaths. This, for me, was profoundly troubling. The Accord study stands most important. I'm glad you brought it up. I was troubled and then muddled on. I didn't even learn from that. What puzzles me is if you look at someone with type 2 diabetes, their bodies have gradually become intolerant of carbohydrates. So they produce yes. more and more insulin until the point where they can't, and that's when they have to seek medical intervention. So their bodies have become carbohydrate intolerant, and yet the treatment for it seemed to be to give them more insulin, yes. keep them on a high-carbohydrate diet, which just seems so strange in retrospect. Well, it does, doesn't it? People used to worry about having a low blood sugar, so you say, oh, just Make sure you have breakfast cereals, have some bread, have a sugary drink. So diabetes, the, the reason it's dangerous is that a high blood sugar damages your circulation and your arteries as a function of time. And the longer you have a blood sugar that's high, the more damaged your arteries become. And this is why type 2 diabetes has such problems uh, with cardiovascular disease, but also it's why your eyes have problems and the kidneys. It's not a complex approach to suggest that you might eat differently. I may not be the brightest in the box, but how was it that over 25 years, I forgot, at medical school, we were taught actually about carbohydrate counting, and then that became unfashionable. I think one of the problems was the idea that people should eat what they like, that you were entitled 
to have cake and ice cream and that the drugs would help you eat what you were entitled to eat. I think I had the wrong paradigm, Liz. My paradigm was, okay, what's wrong with you? What tests can I do? And then what drugs will I give you? I didn't believe that patients were capable of of really changing lifestyle. And now I know they're perfectly capable of understanding that they should avoid carbohydrate, as you suggest, and they do it. I think one of the things that I really missed was I, I found patients irritating because it never worked. I told them what to do, like lose weight and move around more and eat small meals frequently, and that breakfast was the most important meal of the day. And then I was cross because they came back heavier. And I'd missed something really important, Liz. I'd missed the fact that my advice was rubbish and that I was the common denominator. I, I was just so ignorant, really. I was the common denominator. My advice was to blame, not the patients. So it's irritating seeing all these patients roll up as a reminder of your failure. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I didn't like to think of it as that. I, I reframed it as their failures. And I was very tutting. And it got to a point where people with type 2 diabetes and obesity were my least favorite patients. And now I love treating them. I see them uh, not as a problem, an interesting puzzle. And I think that's a very important psychological thing that we shouldn't see patients as problems. And I think a lot of exhausted healthcare professionals just stop thinking because we're so tired. But I am thinking now, a bit late in the day, and I am very curious and interested in why are people unwell? Because if we know what the causes of ill health are, we're in a much better position to suggest remedies or indeed prevention. And I think something that got you started on exploring the low-carb approach was a patient of yours had gone away and done some research herself, and she'd started off on that track. Yes, that's absolutely true. So I had never seen drug-free type 2 diabetes remission. I'd never seen somebody come off drugs for diabetes in 25 years. And this lady had side effects from her medication. And she'd gone online and discovered there were 40,000 people on a website, diabetes.co.uk, in a sort of self-help group. Just made sense to her that you shouldn't be eating stuff that puts up your blood sugar. So she came off not just sugar, but the starch, carbohydrates, stopped taking a metformin without even asking me. The audacity. Exactly. Without even, who's in charge? Yeah. It's righteous. But I had my comeuppance because when we did the blood test, her blood sugars were absolutely normal. And I think she lost about three stone. Almost overnight, I started thinking properly I thought something has gone really badly wrong where people like this lady doing well, doctors like me were saying, you know, well, you'll probably die. It's irresponsible. I suddenly thought this all needs a rethink. We came up with the idea of doing low carb in the practice, doing group consultations. And we've been doing those now for 10 or 11 years. And my wife and I started with the first 18 patients and we went on the low carb diet alongside our patients and learnt with them. And that was the start of me bringing a collaborative approach to medicine rather than a top-down, that I would learn with my patients and be curious. And David, you published one of your most recent papers in BMJ Nutrition in January. 
What results from your practice did you report? Yes, we've actually got probably 10 or 12 peer-reviewed papers now. Two of them have been in MJ Nutrition. And I think it's a testament to the amount of interest that there is in the world that our two papers in BMJ Nutrition are in the top three papers that that journal has ever published in terms of altmetric score or the interest of the public. Wow. How unusual that an old GP from the back end of beyond is publishing papers, two of them in the top three of all papers ever published by that journal. And that is because this is a great interest, not just to doctors, but to the public. The latest paper was published in BMJ Nutrition this January, and all our papers are open access. So any listeners who would like to read them, you've only got to Google Unwin and BMJ Nutrition, and it's there. And in the supplementary file is the diet sheet we use and all of the educational things that we help our patients. So we try to chuck everything in that paper so that if anybody wants to pinch our ideas, they can. And what exactly did your latest study find, David? What percentage of patients were able to go into remission using this approach? So as things stand at the moment, of all the people registered with my practice with type 2 diabetes, so this is an NHS practice north of Liverpool, and 40% are low-carb. Of the ones who choose low-carb, half of them get drug-free type 2 diabetes remission, half. Wow. And that's at three years. So it's not within the first few months, but half of them are not on any medication and they have a blood sugar which is not in the diabetic range. That's the definition of drug-free remission. So that is an in, is a huge number, and we're very proud. What we've also learned from our asking of interesting questions is who gets remission? And we know that if people choose a low-carb approach within the first year being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, 73% of them will get remission. So that's nearly three quarters. This brings me really to the talk about prevention. We did another paper also published in BMJ Nutrition. And this time, as well as the people with diabetes, we looked at the ones with prediabetes. Of the ones who chose a low-carb diet, not a single one in three years went on to develop diabetes, and 93% of them achieved a normal blood sugar, so they were no longer pre-diabetic. And so that gives hope, really, that we could do something amazing in terms of the prevention Can I ask how you're defining pre-diabetic? Because there's a slight difference in the US and the UK. There is. What we measure now internationally is the haemoglobin A1c, which is the average sugariness of the blood for the preceding three months. We measure that in millimoles per mole. And normal in the UK is under 42. Pre-diabetes is 42 to 48. And diabetes is 48 and above. Now, in America, uh, the pre-diabetes, as you rightly say, goes to a lower average sugariness. And I think that's where we are wrong and they are right, because we know from Roy Taylor's work, he's a professor at Newcastle University, very famous, really, for elucidating why is it that we develop type 2 diabetes. 
And he talks about a long, silent scream from the liver of about 10 years before you're actually diabetic. So what is happening is if you continue to eat more carbohydrate than is good for you, insulin has to get rid of that sugar and some of it gets pushed in the liver. Gradually, you develop fatty liver and 38% of the entire developed world now has fatty liver. Fatty liver interferes with the good work of insulin. So you become insulin resistant. Your insulin doesn't work as well anymore. So I think to wait until your hemoglobin A1C is 42 is an error because even at 40, things are going wrong. In the UK, nobody will do anything until your hemoglobin A1C is 42. But actually, from Roy Taylor's work, we know that that long silent screen is beginning to happen. And you may well benefit from emptying your liver of fat and cutting the carbohydrates. So it's an interesting uh, point you make. And does that mean if somebody's pre-diabetic and they cut their carbohydrates, do they have to be as strict as someone who has full-blown diabetes? That's a really interesting question. How low do you go? So if we're doing research, less than 130 grams of carbohydrate per day is the definition of a low-carb diet. But you know, when I look at the people I see in my clinics, and you think about the fact they're having sugary breakfast cereals, possibly with half a pint of fresh orange juice, so that's sugar with your sugar, and then they're having snacks, which is more sugar, and sugary drinks, more sugar, and then sandwiches at lunchtime with a cake, more sugar, and then pizza, which is more sugar, sometimes with chips, you can see these people are having hundreds of grams of carb a day. And some of those people, just by cutting back, being moderate with the carbs, do achieve significant improvements in control. The point is that the more insulin resistant you are, the more you have to cut back. And I have another really important point, Liz. I've become fascinated, not just by the successes, but also why we fail. We probably got arguably the best results of any clinic in the world. We do not accept failure. We're always interested why. And I mentioned moderation a minute ago. There are people who cannot moderate carbohydrate. So I have a patient who is addicted to bread, so addicted to bread that his wife sprays bleach on any crusts she puts in the bin because otherwise he will eat them. Wow. I'm discovering people who are addicted to carbs in every clinic I do. And this is why moderation is not always the best advice. If you can do it, well, that's marvelous. But you'd be amazed how many people get cravings and go back to crisps, ice cream, whatever. And these were our early failures. If moderation works, well, I'm delighted. But if it doesn't, I don't give up. And uh, I have some experience of this because I was having large numbers of biscuits to cope with stress as a GP. And patients would bring me packets of biscuits. My top drawer was full of them. And I was using the biscuits to cope with stress. So if it was a really scary patient, that might be a six biscuit person. I wasn't hungry, but I was eating biscuits all day long. Now, giving up biscuits took me a full year. And as we've said, I'm slightly stupid, but not really stupid. <laughs> and I was you know, addicted to those biscuits. And I had high blood pressure. And as it turned out, I had type 2 diabetes as well. So you, you touched a nerve there with moderation. If you can do it, 
that's wonderful. But I think it's so important that people should be honest with themselves. You know, what is moderation? And is your weight satisfactory? Is your blood pressure okay? And how's your diabetes? If you do have full-blown type 2 diabetes, what is the sort of level of low carb that you are looking at? We talked about 130 grams, but is that for people who've got full-blown diabetes or do they need to go lower than that? It varies. And it varies because it depends what you're eating now. Some of the most spectacular results, I remember I had a lady with a hemoglobin A1C of 140. Wow. 140, that's one of the highest I've ever seen. Nearly 100 over what it should be. Yes, yes. I went out to see her. I thought it was a medical emergency. And when I got to the house, she was tucking into three puddings, three in front of her. Wow. She also had packets of sweets and crisps all around her. She got her blood sugar right down to a normal range because she was eating so much sugar. For people with type 2 diabetes, I'm trying to get them usually down to somewhere under 100 grams of carbohydrate a day, usually. And is that net or gross? Net would be obviously counting the carbs after the fibre content had been removed. Yes. In America, they count fibre as carbohydrate, whereas in the UK, we don't. So for here, that's net carbs. So basically, if you're looking at a packet and it gives you carbs and it gives you the fibre, you can take away the fibre content from the carb to give you the net carb. Yeah, because, of course, fibre isn't absorbed. And so although it may be carbohydrate, it's not adding to the sugar burden. Just to talk about where, how does the keto diet fit into this? The keto diet now, I think, internationally, is something like in the top three of all diets. And there's a lot of confusion about what it is. If we could just go back to what insulin does. Yeah. Insulin as a priority, is getting rid of blood sugar. So if you have carbohydrates all day long, your insulin levels are reasonably high to get rid of that sugar because a high blood sugar damages your arteries and nature is essentially logical. But insulin does something else very interesting. It blocks your ability to burn fat. And this is why somebody who may be very heavy is hungry, even though they're loaded up with fuel. And that is because if they're eating carbohydrates all day long, they are struggling to burn their own fat, which is a very good fuel. Now, if you get your carbohydrate down somewhere below 50 or 30 grams of carbohydrate a day, then you're able to fat burn far more. And you're a fat burner. And at this point, you're in ketosis. And this is the basis of the keto diet. So the keto diet is a very low carb diet inducing nutritional ketosis so that you are burning fat for fuel. And in fact, I have been in ketosis most of the time for nine years. So I burn fat. I've been a four-mile run this morning, and I'll have done that on fat. I feel better if I do that, and it gives me really good diabetic control. So my hemoglobin A1c is 36, despite having type 2 diabetes. So just to control the diabetes, you probably need to be on average, net carb of 100 grams. But if you want to go into ketosis, which can be helpful for people who still feel hungry, despite the fact. Yes. Or if you're not losing enough weight. Or you're not losing enough weight. That's right. Maybe weight loss. It may be to improve blood pressure. I also find there's great interest now in mental health and ketosis. 
they're doing some great work in Edinburgh with Dr. Ian Campbell, who is actually uh, looking at the benefits of keto diets for people with bipolar, doing a proper RCT in uh, Edinburgh on this. And the preliminary results are looking very good. So that this whole thing, we're right at the dawn. I interviewed Georgia Ede, actually, some months back, also about her use of the diet to treat various psychiatric illnesses. Yeah, I love Georgia Ede. Such a compassionate psychiatrist, so kind, and trying not to use drugs. Interesting, isn't it, David? Because diabetes threatens to crash health systems around the world. I mean, in the UK, I think already diabetes drugs alone take up 10% of the GP's drugs budget. Yes. So you must have seen a huge reduction yes. in the amount of money that your patients will be spending on medication. Yes. Well, we've audited this because it's so powerful. And, you know, if you continually use lifestyle instead of drugs, then the savings multiply up. At the moment, we are spending £68,000 less per year on drugs for diabetes alone than is average for our area. The tragedy is that we don't get to keep a penny of that £68,000 to fund the services. It's a very perverse world where it seems as if we, we, we have to use statins and we have to use drugs, but there are no incentives to encourage a doctor like me who would like to help my patients without drugs. I have no incentives. And in fact, the doctors at Norwood Avenue are funding this out of their own pockets because we believe in it. And that cannot be right. It cannot be right. Also, it doesn't make much logical sense because we know the NHS is cash strapped. Imagine if what you were doing was replicated in every GP surgery and some of that money could be given back to the GPs yeah. and some of that money could be used to yeah. help fund other preventative measures within the NHS. I mean, it could be transformative. Yeah, we've done the sums. And if every GP in the UK prescribed as Norwood Avenue does, there would be a saving of £277 million per year. The paradigm is pharma-centric. Everything is about drugs. We think about them, we prescribe them, and the guidelines would seem to me that what they do is they, they give lip service at the beginning to, yes, we'll talk about lifestyle with the patients, but then you start them ramping up on the drugs. And if they don't do well, instead of asking, why haven't you done well? Could it be what you've eaten? We had another drug. In every clinic I do, I come across people who've just been on a cruise or a holiday or Christmas and their blood sugar's sky high. And instead of saying to them, right, without a drug, I just say, I wonder why you've gone so sugary. And they go, oh God, you know, it's been my 60th birthday and um, I've drifted. You know, leave it to me. But nationally, the response to these spikes or people with very sugary blood is, you know, the guidelines say add this drug or sometimes two drugs. And we never think about reducing again. People are funneled towards polypharmacy. You're absolutely right. There is no health service anywhere in the world that is coping with diabetes. Nowhere. I go all over the world. I've been to Malaysia, Australia, Central Europe. Everyone is struggling. Because this is a pandemic. Diabetes type 2 is a pandemic. And our response so far has been woefully inadequate. Back in 2016, you were the national winner of the NHS Innovator of the Year Award for your work in this area. 
So seven years on, and I suppose we all know the NHS doesn't move fast, but it's a little bit frustrating to think that it's not being applied more widely. A bit. (laughs) Well, yes, I mean, it's true. Uh, Jeremy Hunt shook my hand and said, oh, what you're doing is amazing. I have made great progress, though, using social media. So we became so frustrated that 16 of us set up a UK charity called the PHC. So this has grown and grown and grown. And now uh, we have big international conferences. We've got one coming next May in London. We fly people from all over the world, leaders in the idea of lifestyle medicine. And we're now rolling this out. We have 200 ambassadors. So any GP that's listening would like some free help to run groups or to help their patients with lifestyle. The PHC ambassadors are trained and will help for free. However, the response from government is ridiculous. Do you know, the Australian government sent a scientific committee all the way to Southport to investigate what I'm doing. The Singapore government this November is sending another scientific committee all the way from Singapore. And yet nobody has come from Westminster just a few hundred miles to see what I'm doing and meet my patients because we're very happy to host people. There is a lack of curiosity in government. And I think we saw it in, do you remember the the idea that we were going to stop advertising of junk foods to children? I do. Well, that just got dumped, didn't it? I, I was cheering at that idea. You know, what are we doing? If we don't care for our children and we we value advertising of junk food more than we value our children. I always try to avoid politics, but I'm becoming upset and angry about it because I feel I'm doing my bit. And the response from government is so disappointing. And perhaps we should also say that as people's insulin resistance builds up, this isn't just a risk factor for diabetes. You mentioned conditions like blood pressure, but there's increasing evidence that it may be involved in not only heart disease, but potentially other cancers, possibly some neurological diseases as well. So it's not even just diabetes. Absolutely not. So we know that insulin resistance is implicated in eight different cancers. I have seen an increase in colorectal cancer in the practice. So that central obesity, insulin resistance is linked to cancer. You get more cancer deaths for people with type 2 diabetes because of this link between sugariness. Insulin, of course, is a growth factor, and that links in to cancer. Certainly blood pressure. We did another publication uh, with Professor Brady of Glasgow University on the incredible improvements in blood pressure that we'd noticed. And we were de-prescribing drugs for hypertension finding improvements in irritable bowel syndrome, skin condition, mental state, particularly anxiety. And it goes on and on. And in fact, I mentioned before the bipolar, uh, I went to a keto conference in uh, Switzerland this summer, and I met three professors of nephrology who were getting improvements in renal function and kidney function with keto. So that, as I say, we're at the dawn of a very interesting age where nutrition can do a lot. Do you find when patients first go on a low-carb approach, whether it's the 100-gram approach or 50 or 30 grams, that they struggle? It's interesting. Some of them do and some of them absolutely don't. 
Some of them just don't know what to eat and others get the diet sheet. Oh, I should say anybody who's again wants to know more, if you Google Unwin and PHC and sugar, you will find our charity website. And on that charity website, I've put absolutely everything I can, frequently asked questions, the diet sheet, everything to help people. I can put a link up to that in the show notes. Yeah, would be useful. You see, for me, the the important work starts with motivating patients. If Liz, I said to you, you need to give up bread, you would think, why should I give up bread? I quite like it. If, however, you understand that bread is dangerous to you and your cardiovascular risk and blood pressure, then you're motivated. And it's really important that I give relevant information to help patients understand why it's important. If I do do my job well, and people understand it's very important, on the whole, they'll give it a go. I'd say most of them do fine, but some of them after a few months get bored. And it's at that point that there are loads and loads of low-carb recipe books. I've done low-carb for 10 years. This is a lifestyle. It's not a diet. So I have to enjoy what I eat. We do cookery demonstrations in the practice. We talk about food all the time in the groups we run, trying to help people understand how you can run a birthday party, how you can invite your friends for dinner, how you can enjoy. You know, food is something to enjoy. And I think there's a lot of work to be done in helping people uh, enjoy their food just as much. And in fact, probably I enjoy my food more now because I eat in a more mindful way. But it does require some early determination. We talk about carbohydrates, but of course, there are many different forms of carbohydrates. Obviously, you've got the sugar and the refined carbohydrates that you get in flour, grains, which I'm assuming you won't be very keen on. But you've also got the complex carbohydrates, which are found in fruit and vegetables. Presumably, those are less damaging. Well, now we come to the glycemic index. The sugariness of carbohydrates vary. And if you took pure glucose, that's 100. So the glycemic index scores every carbohydrate relative to pure glucose. And the carbohydrates do vary. Some are much worse than others. So the carbohydrate in cornflakes is very sugary. And it's for this reason um, that I developed my teaspoon of sugar equivalents. These charts, I think they're in 18 languages now, and they've been downloaded millions of times around the world. Because the problem I had was that patients were confused by how sugary different things were. So I got together with an expert in the glycemic index and the glycemic load, Dr. Jeffrey Liebsey, and we did the calculations for 800 foods in terms of teaspoons of sugar. So I can tell you, Liz, that 150 grams of boiled rice, in terms of what it does to your blood sugar, is the same as 10 teaspoons of sugar, or a small slice of brown bread is the same as three teaspoons of sugar. If you go to the PHC, you'll see there are seven infograms comparing, for instance, a banana is very sugary, raspberries are not, berries are less sugary. And so these infograms are there to help people uh, become clearer about where sugar is coming from in their diet. So taking the rice analogy, so normally if I was going to eat rice, I'd look in the packet and if I cook 50 grams of rice, it'll tell me what the carbohydrate amount is. But that won't necessarily be enough information. No, 
because different carbohydrates vary in how sugary they are, or even different types of rice vary in how sugary they are. Interestingly, though, brown rice is only about a third better than polished white rice. And I'd have your curry on a delicious mix of green veg. Just don't bother with the rice at all. Or have cauliflower rice. It can be delicious. In terms of the UK government's response, in 2021, the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition recommended that adults with type 2 diabetes could choose a low-carb diet as a short-term option, but recommended that patients should limit their intake of saturated fats. And they said there was limited data on long-term interventions with the diet. The odd thing is there is no long-term data for any diet. There's no long-term data for a low-fat diet. So for them to pick off low-carb diet and say it's all right on the short term is disingenuous because they have no evidence of the low-fat diet. Because, you know, who's going to fund it? Liz, would you eat food that you didn't like for, say, five years because I'd recruited you to a study? You wouldn't, would you? No, it'd be very difficult, I think. And so there is no long-term data. Yeah reliable scientific data on any diet because you can't fund it. Number one, they're disingenuous to pick out low carb when they don't have any evidence to back up the idea you should be low fat. And when low fat has gone head to head in an RCT, I think almost without exception, and I've got a list of 27 of them, and they're listed in the PHC as well, low carb wins every time. Let's move on to saturated fat. So in the beginning, I was concerned. So it became a discipline for me to monitor very carefully all the lipid profiles of the people who went low carb. My surprise when it improved. So they haven't cut the fats. They've increased the fats. They're having cream and butter and cheese. And the lipid profiles improve significantly. And I've written this up in three peer-reviewed papers, the Brady one, and the two BMJ nutrition papers, where the lipid profiles have improved. And then there was an interesting meta-analysis of low-carb and lipid profiles done in Liverpool University, published in 2018. And they concluded that you get an improved lipid profile with a low-carb diet. So this saturated fat thing mystifies me. I used to do that. I tried that for years, telling people to stop eggs, stop butter. And then patients would come to me and they'd say, I haven't had a speck of butter and I've had no eggs. I can't wait for my cholesterol result. What is it? And you know what? So often it hadn't improved. People have this idea, if you eat fat, that then translates to increased fat in your bloodstream. And I think that was the confusion. Well, I brought up to that, to me, as a simple GP, the idea you're clogging your arteries, a bit like you know, the lime in your kettle. I bought into that. And yet what's interesting is, Liz, now we know that sugar attacks the lining of your arteries. The glycocalyx is the nonstick lining of all of our arteries. And there's been some wonderful studies that show it is damaged within six hours of a high blood sugar. Why do people die with diabetes? They die of cardiovascular disease. So actually, the idea of sugar being the bogeyman rather than fat, to me, is perhaps more where it's at. This goes back to the 1970s debate, Yes, whether we should go down a low-fat or a low-sugar diet, and it was the low-fat debate that won. 
I think we're paying the price. I said to you that between 1986 and 2012, we had an eight-fold increase in the people with diabetes type 2 in our practice. It's crippling the health service. I think that's what happens because people went low fat and thought the sugar was probably fine. Now, what happens, David, if people go to their low carb, 100 grams or whatever, but they think, oh, well, now I'm not eating that carb. Rather than pushing up the fat, they push up the protein. I think that's quite a good idea. I think many people do not have enough protein, particularly older people. So, of course, being logical, Liz, you're right. If you're going to cut the carbs, you have two alternatives. There are three macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrate. So cut the carbs, and then you can juggle and experiment. And I personally base my meals on protein and add in tasty green veg and a bit of butter. I find that protein is great for satiety. I'm 64, as I say. So for me, muscle bulk is important because we know that things like grip strength and muscle bulk are linked to how long you live. So so many older people don't have enough protein. I encourage them to eat more meat. I'm saying more meat, more fish, more eggs. And let's see how you go. And I'll monitor the lipid profile. So I'm glad you brought up protein. So the recommendations that we have, do you think for protein are too low at the moment? Yes. Not just old people. I think also many children do not get enough protein. Because if you think if you're having breakfast cereals, the, the sort of meals I was talking about earlier, you know, we need protein for growth. The average diet of so many children with the snacks and the sugar, another problem. For an adult woman, I think the protein level is recommended around about sort of 50 to 60 grams. So you presumably would think it should be much higher than that. Yes, probably about 100. The world of nutrition is full of dogma. And I've discovered so much nonsense by not trusting what I have read, but checking myself. So another dogma was, oh, all this protein will weaken your kidneys. And I've been shouted at on when I've done my public speaking by people who've said, well, you're ruining their kidney function. So we've got the data on hundreds of patients. I've got baseline and latest follow-up. So I did another paper looking at what happens to renal function. The renal function of people with diabetes should go down. It should deteriorate because diabetes attacks the kidneys. At Norwood Avenue, it does exactly the opposite. Renal function improves. That was a paper I wrote with a professor of nephrology, Professor Wong from Liverpool University. And Professor Wong was intrigued and he looked into why do we think protein weakens the kidneys? And it's all due to a paper written in 1988 by Brenner. And it's behind a paywall. But when you get the paper, it explains that uh, protein injures the kidneys of harbor seals and rabbits and dogs and cats and indeed vampire bats. But Brenner had no human data. And that paper has been cited 1,300 times as kidney damage from protein. And it's largely dogma, as we've published. Paper gets cited, and then the next paper cites it, and then the next paper yes. cites it, and nobody goes back, in fact, to the original source. You're right. And also, you don't feel like paying 30 I paid $36. You know, not many people will pay $36 and actually read the paper. Yeah. There's things going wrong in the world of science and publishing. I've learned to be skeptical. I would say to people, well, you could try and notice very carefully what happens. Measure your waste. 
measure your blood pressure, measure your weight. Will your doctor do your blood sugar or buy a Freestyle Libra and find out for yourself? Do an experiment and find out what suits you. Because, you know, Liz, there isn't one low-carb diet. There are as many diets as there are people. My wife and I eat differently. We are low-carb. And I think it's really interesting for each of us to find out which diet suits me. Trouble is, if you eat a lot of junk food, you can't hear your body. Mm. You're so full of cravings. You miss all the signals. Our bodies give us signals about what to eat. You know, when in spring, when you really fancy a salad, that's a primeval thing, isn't it? Where, you know, your body is communicating with you. Yeah. Once you give up the junk food, so that's the first stage, just give up the junk food and start to notice and measure and try the low-carb diet. And is my blood pressure better? How do I feel? Have I lost weight? Is my belly smaller? And that's what I say to my patients. We're on a, a lifelong experiment, and it changes over time. Now, in some countries, David, where the podcast has listeners, I know people can't get a continuous glucose monitor without a prescription. But here in the UK, you can. Do you think it's a useful tool? perhaps, in fact, for all of us? That's hotly debated, Liz. So the continuous glucose monitors give wonderful feedback about what's happening to your blood sugar. But of course, if you're very insulin sensitive, it doesn't reveal the full problem because your body is packing away that glucose. So you may not know. So all I'd say is it, it, it's more useful if you have diabetes. You will learn something quite a lot if you get a glucose monitor, but the more insulin sensitive you are, the less the sugar will be revealed because you're getting rid of it. How big is your belly? Is your waist circumference less than half your height? Is it a very good proxy for what's going on? Is your blood pressure all right? Do you feel lethargic all the time? How are you sleeping? All of these things can indicate that somebody could get an improvement from diet. And what about the insulin-resistant tests? Well, I can't get them. So frustratingly, in the NHS, I can't measure fasting insulin. They're only available privately, aren't they? Yeah, I'm not allowed to do it. And because I'm an NHS doctor, I'm having to guess. What I would say is that fasting triglyceride is a very good proxy. And if you have a high triglyceride, triglyceride is a cholesterol-like thing in the blood. It's part of the fasting lipid profile. If you have a high triglyceride, it's very likely, a high fasting triglyceride, it's very likely you're insulin resistant. And so I'm using in my practice, I'm doing fasting lipid profiles and looking very carefully at the triglyceride HDL ratio, because that's a good proxy for insulin resistance. Now, David, one of the criticisms people do make of low-carb diets is that there isn't enough fiber. What's your reaction to that? I'm very grateful to Karen Zinn, who wrote a paper in the BMJ on this. So she actually looked at how much fiber is in a well-formulated low-carb diet, and it has a normal amount of fiber. And of course, low-carb diets vary. So Diet Coke and pepperoni, if that's all you had, would be a low-carb diet. But it's clearly a poorly formulated low-carb diet. My low-carb diet has got a lot of green veg in it, which supply fiber. My low-carb diet has 90% chocolate in it, which is a good source of fiber, and nuts as well. So my diet is not short of fiber at all. Well, David, I think the worry some people have 
is that because grains provide a lot of fiber, removing all of them can be a problem. But they also provide provide a lot of irritants. So I see a lot of people who have irritable bowel syndrome because they're having too much fiber. One of the things I'd like to say is we, we should think about nutritional density of what we eat. One of the problems with the world is we are overfed and undernourished. That's why obesity is becoming such a problem. We're overfed. But I find in the practice, the number of people who are vitamin deficient is huge. And that's because we're eating large quantities of poor quality food. If we ate less, but it had a higher nutrient density, we could do a lot of good. And I think that's what low carb is. Um, I'm eating less. I usually only eat twice a day. And I'm eating stuff with a greater nutritional density. The other lifestyle changes that look like they could have an impact outside of diet are things like fasting. Have you used that with your patients at all? Yes, a lot. I'm really interested in that. And there is evidence for this. There are good RCTs. There was one done in Italy where they paid for students. Students are poor, so they paid for all their food. The only stipulation was they had to eat it either before six o'clock or after. And the ones who ate the same calories later in the day put on significant weight. So it's not about calories. Every time you eat, there's a little spike of insulin, and insulin is fat fertilizer. For many of my patients, eating in a restricted window can also bring improvements in type 2 diabetes. So you're absolutely right. A restricted window of eating is good. And of course, exercise. Now, we haven't talked about exercise. Exercise is brilliant for everything but weight loss. I think that's now agreed that, yes, mental health, better, diabetes, better, but you won't lose weight at the gym. Going back to the results that you've had, David, you've got an obviously large proportion of patients who you have been able to put into remission. The ones that you haven't, is that because they found it hard to stick to a low-carb approach or because the diabetes 2 has advanced too much? I'm glad you asked me that because that is one of the questions, the scientific questions, was answered by the 2023 paper. So what we did we divided the people who went low carb into two groups, the one who achieved remission, 50 to 51%, and the ones who didn't. And that enabled us to, to see what's the difference between these two groups. What we learned was that the ones who achieved remission, on the whole, had diabetes of a less duration. They hadn't been diabetic as long, and they started with less bad hemoglobin A1c. The ones who don't achieve remission they actually get overall a better improvement in hemoglobin A1c, but because they started with a worse level, it doesn't take them down to a normal blood sugar. So it's a double message of hope, really. The ones who got remission get remission, hooray. But the ones who didn't, 47% got an improved blood sugar, and only 3% got worse at the end of three years. We've been talking about type 2 diabetes, but does a low-carb approach have benefit for people with type 1? Obviously, these are people who don't produce any insulin, but presumably if they're having low-carb, therefore they need to take less insulin. Absolutely. The, these are a very interesting group, and it's not my area of expertise, but I have been helping patients. And I can tell you that the people with type 1 diabetes have worked with me of course, they're going to need insulin or they'll die. 
But on the whole, they use 50% less insulin when they go low carb. And the thing that they really like is they don't get hypos. They're far less likely to get hypos, far less likely to be hospitalized. And then there's another disease, which a lot of people are now calling type 3 diabetes, and that's Alzheimer's, because it seems high blood sugar levels are a risk factor for that. I think it's true. We know that this this is another epidemic. We know that a high blood sugar damages your circulation. And one of the most vascular organs is the brain. It's a highly vascular organ that's very vulnerable. And insulin resistance affects the brain as well, so that it becomes a problem of how does your brain get energy. I'd summarize it really, Liz. It's not that I'm eating a low-carb diet. It's that most of society is now eating a high-carb diet. Because if we look at a historical perspective and how we were designed, you know, if you've got a Ferrari, you need to think about what is the perfect fuel for that Ferrari. We spent millennia as cavemen. There are no sources of refined carbohydrates for those cavemen. They was honey, but you're not telling me they were eating honey every day. The way we were designed was not for the food environment we find ourselves in. Yeah. There were berries in autumn, so you were meant to get fat in autumn. And then in the winter, you use that fat to live. But I've said it before, we're, we're now living in a perpetual autumn for a winter that never comes. Chronic diseases, many of them are because we are using the wrong fuel and stuff is going wrong and getting worse and worse and worse. And the drugs we are using are sticking plasters and they're not really delivering. The answer to the problems of the health service cannot be more drugs more doctors or nurses administering the drugs. It should be prevention. We must invest and think about prevention before the health service crumbles. So final question, David, if I make you health secretary tomorrow, what do you do then? Oh, I'm glad you've made me health secretary. (laughs) Um, Is the prime minister going to do as I ask? You have complete control. Oh, it's like Desert Island Discs, this. Right. It's being done in uh, Brazil already, what I'd like to do. So a Brazilian city was crippled by diabetes. And what they did, they taxed junk food heavily. And they subsidized with that money, locally produced healthy green veg and meat in farmers markets. And it changed the whole economy because all the farmers were rewarded. People started sourcing foods locally and poor people could afford quality food. And it changed that city. I've met the head of public health of that city. That is my model. You know, I'm not going to stop you from eating junk food, but I think they should be taxed just like alcohol. What we should be doing is subsidizing whole food, healthy whole foods. Then people would, if it was cheap, they would use it. That's what I would do. So let's hope it happens. Really interesting idea. David, thank you so much for talking today. Really thought-provoking. You're very, very welcome. I hope that's been of, of interest anyway. Absolutely has. Thank you. Bye now. Bye, David. Hope you enjoyed the latest podcast. And a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>